Well, in today's gospel lesson, Jesus asks his disciples two very important questions. First, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And second, who do you say that I am? So in response to this first question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answer, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But when Jesus asks the follow-up question, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so what do you think that Peter meant by that statement? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And do you agree with Peter's statement? If you do, what does you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, mean to you? If Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does that mean? Not just to you as an individual, but what does it mean to us as the church? And if Jesus is, is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does it mean to the world outside the church? That word Christ, or in Greek, Christos, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, means God's anointed one. And back, back in biblical times, there were three different types of people who were anointed. There were prophets who were anointed, and priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. In Jesus, we find all three. He is God's anointed prophet. He is God's anointed priest, and he is God's anointed king. Jesus truly was and is the Messiah, God's anointed one. And so if it's clear to you and to me that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one, why was he rejected by the Jews 2,000 years ago? And why is he still rejected by so many people today? You know, only about 30% of the world's population are Christians. That means over 5 billion people either don't know Jesus or have chosen to reject him. Why was he rejected by so many 2,000 years ago? Well, to begin with, the Jews, Jews were expecting a very different Messiah I think that was the whole point of Jesus' first question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You see, the people were expecting a Messiah. In fact, they prayed for it daily. They were expecting the long-awaited Messiah promised by God. The problem was they weren't expecting him to be the Son of God. Instead, they were expecting him to be the Son of Man. They were expecting a Messiah who would flex God's muscle and exercise God's rule over his people. They were expecting a God who would liberate them from physical and financial and military oppression. They were expecting a Messiah like a man named Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was a self-described Messiah who back in the year 167 BC, he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, just like Jesus did that first Palm Sunday, when he went in to pray, and he found that God's house had been turned into a marketplace of buying and selling and cheating. Jesus found that the temple had been turned from a house of prayer into what he called a den of thieves. There's a big difference between Jesus and Judas Maccabeus. You see, after cleansing the temple in 167 BC, Judas Maccabeus went on to lead a Jewish revolt that forced the infidels and their occupying armies from Jerusalem. And as a result, he was, and still is to this day, 
hailed as one of the greatest warriors in Jewish history. As a military warrior, he's right up there with Joshua and, and Gideon and David. And if you're interested, you can read all about Judas Maccabeus in the book of Maccabees. It's in the Apocrypha. And that was written between the times of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was also very well known to the average Jew of Jesus's day. And so the type of Messiah that the Jews were looking for and the type of Messiah that they were expecting was a Judas Maccabeus type Messiah. They expected an all conquering military hero. But instead of leading a military, military revolt after cleansing the temple, Jesus would be arrested just a few days later and he'd be beaten and mocked and rejected and crucified just as a common criminal, condemned. Jesus wasn't the all-conquering Judas Maccabeus type hero that the Jews were expecting. In fact, he was the complete opposite. Instead of an all-conquering military hero, we find the suffering servant. The suffering servant that Isaiah described in the 53rd chapter of his book. So listen to how the prophet Isaiah described this long-awaited Messiah 800 years before he entered the world as a baby born in a humble stable in Bethlehem. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. And 300 years before Jesus was born, Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, wrote, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The long-awaited Messiah foretold by the prophets Isaiah and Malachi, Malachi, is the same Messiah that St. Peter recognized in Jesus. But Peter also recognized much more because he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter recognized that Jesus wasn't just a human Messiah, but that he was also divine, that Jesus was not just the son of man, but that he was in fact, the son of the living God. This is something that would have never dawned on the average Jew who was praying day after day that God would send the promised Messiah. That's why Jesus's response to Peter was, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, the Jews never expected that God himself would be the promised Messiah, that God, through the second person of the Holy Trinity, would step into his own creation by taking on human flesh, and that he would be the Messiah. 
Again, in their minds, the promised Messiah would be the son of man. And this son would be an incredibly powerful man, but only a man. To call Jesus the son of the living God, well, that was an unbelievably profound statement for Peter to make. As a devout Jew, Peter had been taught his whole life that there's only one God, and only he is worthy of being worshipped. Even as a child, Peter would have been taught never to worship another person as God. To do so would be blasphemy. This was one of the things that caused the Jews and, and later the Christians to clash with the Romans and their pagan religions. Because emperor worship in, in that day was the way Roman subjects proved their loyalty to Rome. All it took was just a little tiny pinch of incense offered to a statue of the Roman emperor who had proclaimed himself to be a god. And so this was a profound and very significant statement for Peter. And the place where Jesus asked the disciples the question, who do people say that the son of man is? That city wasn't insignificant either. Jesus asked the question in Caesarea Philippi, a city of about, that was about 25 miles northeast of Jesus's hometown in Nazareth. And it was known for the many different religions that were practiced inside its walls. In the city, there were more than a dozen temples dedicated to the worship of the pagan god, Baal. And off in the distance, high on a prominent mountain peak, you could see the ultimate blasphemy. Ultimate blasphemy for a Jew, that is. A temple built by King Herod the Great, dedicated not to the worship of the one true God, but dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Now, William Barclay, he's a famous Bible commentator. He wrote this. He said, here indeed is a dramatic picture. Here is a homeless, penniless Galilean carpenter, referring to Jesus, with 12 very ordinary men around him. The very moment the Orthodox are actually plotting and planning to destroy him as a dangerous heretic. He stands in an area littered with the temples of Syrian gods in a place where the ancient Greek gods looked down, the place where the history of Israel crowded upon the minds of men, where the white marble splendor of the home of Caesar worship dominated the landscape and compelled the eye. And there, of all places, this amazing carpenter stands and asks men who they believe him to be. And the answer is, the Son of God. And so what does all this mean for us today? If Jesus is God's anointed one, and if he truly is divine, if he truly is God incarnate, God in human flesh, then I think we need to make a take what he says very seriously. One of the most profound things he said was, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now that is a very powerful and clearly a very exclusive statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, you have to pay attention and notice that Jesus didn't say, I am one of the ways. I am one of the truths. He didn't say my way is the best way or my way is the easiest way, but there are other ways to the Father. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
And yet, what's the lie that the world constantly tries to sell us? The lie that all religions are basically the same, and they all worship the same God, just in different ways. But Jesus is very clear on this point. By his own words, he is the one and only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, Christianity, it's not simply about being a nice person, nor is it simply about being a good person. Christianity is all about accepting Jesus, repenting of your sins, and then following him in your daily life. And so universalism, that's the belief that all religions will eventually lead to God, is definitely not a Christian option. And the reason it's not is because who Jesus is. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the question for us this morning is, who do you say that Jesus is? And if you call yourself a Christian, what does that mean? Being a Christian is not simply about being a good person who participates in church on Sunday. In fact, it's not at all about who the follower is, but instead it's all about the one whom we follow. A Christian is a person who has recognized who Jesus is and has decided to follow him and to do his will, no matter what, because he is the Lord God Almighty. And St. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so if you really believe that, you have no choice but to follow him every day of your life, no matter what. You have no choice but to obey his command to share the good news of salvation and eternal life that's found in him and in him alone. As believers, we have no choice but to turn our lives over to him and to ask the Holy Spirit to inspire and equip us to minister to others in Christ's name. As the body of Christ, we have no choice but to reach out to a broken and hurting world in Christian love and charity and to bring others to Christ. As a Christian, that's my job. You know what? As a Christian, that's your job. If we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we have no choice. And so the call is loud, and the mission is clear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.